Welcome to Hope. Uh, I am so glad that you've joined us for worship today. And I think it's just fantastic that the title of the sermon is the question, what will heaven be like? I want to thank God for the perfect sermon illustration. Question, what will heaven be like? Answer, not like this. It's way too hot to be heaven, right? I mean, actually, considering what they were telling us how hot it was going to be, this is actually pretty good, isn't it? Nice and comfortable, got a breeze, and ah, you guys are, you are amazing. So I also want to be clear, like, I'm not saying there's not going to be some warmth and some sunshine in heaven. We were in uh, South Carolina a couple of weeks ago on a family vacation. We rented an RV. We got a spot at a state park, and we socially distanced uh, at the ocean. And it was hot at the beach, but it was also great. It's what we wanted. And the nice ocean breeze and, and the rhythm of the waves as they kept crashing. Like, you can watch a fireplace for hours, right, just looking at the flames as, as they're jumping. You can do the same thing uh, with the waves of the ocean, I think. And besides that, I was with my favorite people on earth, my wife and my kids. And so uh, that week at the beach, we got to experience some heaven on earth. What will heaven be like? Actually, the biblical writers spend a great deal of time talking about this question, but as we dive into it, I just want to remind you we're in a message series called Surprise, and I think some of the ways in which the biblical writers talk about heaven and answer this question, what will heaven be like, it it will catch us a little bit off guard. And so as we get started, I want us to go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app, open up to Isaiah chapter 52, and there's a poem in Isaiah 52 that uh, perhaps part of it might be familiar to you. It's a poem that God is giving to the prophet Isaiah and then ultimately to the people. And in verse 7, it says, How beautiful on the mountaintops are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. How beautiful on the mountaintop are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. A a little bit of context is important to understand what's going on here. When God is giving this poem to the people, uh, the people are not experiencing some beautiful days. They're experiencing some pretty problematic days. They've been conquered by the Babylonians. The temple, the place where they worship, has been destroyed. The... uh, Walls of Jerusalem have been knocked down. The defense of of that city that they call home has been destroyed. Most of the important buildings were destroyed. And then many of the people of Jerusalem were carried off as captives into exile in this foreign land called Babylon. And to the remnant, to the people who were left behind uh, in Jerusalem in those days, God gives this message through the prophet Isaiah. And at the beginning of chapter 52, just to kind of summarize for you what God says to the people, God says, wake up, dust yourselves off, put on your best clothes, because I am about to redeem you. I'm about to redeem this city. And then we get to verse 7 in this poetic prophecy where God says, how beautiful on the mountaintop are the feet of the messenger who bring Good news. Now, I thought for another good sermon illustration, I would 
show my beautiful feet tonight. Just I, I realize there is such a thing as a foot fetish. I don't understand people who think feet are beautiful. It's kind of surprising to me that God would say the, the feet of a messenger are beautiful, particularly when you think what, what the feet of this messenger would have actually been like. I mean, running down the rocky roads of the Middle East to deliver this message, the feet of the messenger would have been calloused, blistered, dirty, cracked, maybe even bleeding. They would, by definition, not have been beautiful feet, and yet God surprisingly says these feet are beautiful, not because of the way the feet look, but because they're attached to a messenger who's bringing good news. Good news. Is it just me, or does good news sort of seem like it's in short supply these days? I mean, if you pay attention to the news at all, they always end with, hey, here's a little bit of good news, because the last 29 minutes has all just been disaster. And it's just awful news after awful news after awful news, and hey, since you're probably sick of the awful news, here's some good news, just a little bit of good news. And that's just the headlines like for the national media. Each of you in your own personal lives have circumstances and situations that you are going through. It's never going to make headline news. But as you try to live through the bad news that you have to deal with in your life, I mean, it really makes life difficult and challenging. I think in a very real way, we can say we're in a season of captivity. We're in a season of exile. Just like for the people of Jerusalem, when the Babylonians conquered them, very suddenly and very dramatically, everything changed. We're in that kind of a season these days. Very suddenly and very dramatically, everything has changed. And we're trying to figure out how to manage all of these changes. Now, change is something most people don't really like that much at all. If things are going well, if, if things are going, kind of going normally, and there's some sort of change that we have to deal with, it can throw us into a loop. What is it like to go through change like we've been going through these last several months? This is a really difficult time. These are hard days for us. And so I think we need to be reminded of that. We need to give ourselves a little bit of grace in that, give the people that uh, we live with some grace, because these are really hard days, difficult days, challenging days. And the days that were going on in the book of Isaiah for the people who were in Jerusalem, wondering when or if or how that city would be rebuilt, their country would be rebuilt, those were difficult days too. And yet, it's in the middle of those days that God shows up and God says, I've got some good news for you. It's important for us to actually look at the specifics of the good news that God has for the people of Jerusalem. So here's the entire verse, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the good news that the God of Israel reigns. Now, when you're trying to figure out how to make sense of of what the Bible says, part of what you have to do is imagine the first hearers of these words, how would they have heard these words? And the first hearers of these words were people who would have looked around them and seen their city in ruins. 
they would have looked around them and realized, we can't even go into the building that we normally go into for worship because it's been destroyed. These people would have looked around them and realized many of our friends and many of our relatives have been carried away into captivity and into exile. We may never see them again at any point in our lives. And here's God saying, I have good news for you. The good news is, despite everything that's going on, despite all the circumstances, despite all the bad news, the God of Israel still reigns. The God of Israel still reigns. Fast forward 500 years and the Babylonians are no longer around, but now it's the Romans who are occupying uh, the Holy Land, the, the nation of Israel. And Jesus is born and Jesus is baptized and Jesus begins his ministry. Remember his ministry, public ministry lasts for three years. And right before Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew, one of his closest followers, describes the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, this way. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and announcing the good news about the kingdom. 500 years after God, through Isaiah in this prophetic prophecy, says, I've got good news. The God of Israel is still on the throne. The God of Israel still reigns. This is still God's kingdom. Here comes Jesus and his primary message, whether it's secular scholars or scholars who actually believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, they are all in agreement that the central message of Jesus' three years of public ministry was this announcement, this proclamation of the good news about the kingdom. And in most of the Gospels, when they talk about this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, they refer to it as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. But in Matthew's Gospel, almost always he has a different title for this, a different phrase. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is announcing and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. In our Bible reading from uh, Matthew chapter 13, we just looked at three verses where Jesus is trying to help us get a picture, a vision for what heaven is like, what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. If you look at the entire chapter, not just those three verses, you will see story after story, illustration after illustration where Jesus is trying to help us understand. I want you to know what this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what it's like. Here's what it's like. Here, here's another picture for you. Think about it this way. And part of what we see Jesus doing in Matthew chapter 13, he's describing the kingdom of heaven as something that is growing and expanding. He describes the kingdom of heaven as having this influencing force. It's something that is large, that's filled with joy and excitement. The kingdom of heaven is something that is valuable. It's of immeasurable value. It is worth everything you have. And so to consider gathering for worship on a July evening when the heat index is supposed to be in triple digits, I'm guessing that you've experienced something of the worth, the incredible value of life in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus invites us into, that Jesus invites us to experience. Not only did Jesus teach and announce and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, he actually believes what he's saying. 
Uh, he, he demonstrates this is what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. And so if you look at the life of Jesus, part of what you see, he understands he is this messenger who's bringing the good news that uh, God still reigns. But the way Jesus talks about the reign of God, the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he talked about it in some surprising ways. Remember, in Jesus' day, as in most days, everybody understood a great nation, a great kingdom, is a kingdom that uses its political power and its military might to conquer its enemies. Jesus had a different view, a different take. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, it's, it's the middle of July. I've got some good news for you. Just four months, a short four months from now, the presidential election will be over. Isn't that good news? I think part of what that means is we're going to need to remind ourselves on a pretty regular basis over the course of the next four months what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. That Jesus has a completely different way of thinking about and understanding what does it look like to create community, to create society. And time and again throughout church history, Followers of Jesus, the Jesus who says my kingdom is not of this world, followers of Jesus have fallen into the temptation of trying to use the kingdoms of this world in ways that Jesus never wants us to do. So we just need to be reminding ourselves as followers of Jesus, Jesus is the one who says my kingdom is not of this world. I have another way. I have a better way. In Jesus' day, everybody understood the great kingdoms, they used force uh, they used their influence to get their subjects to do whatever the kings wanted them to do. Jesus had a different approach. Whoever wants to be great must be willing to become a servant of all. And, and in Jesus' day, everybody, everybody understood the way to maintain a kingdom, the way to maintain control was to use fear tactics that often involved, you know, inflicting pain on your subjects in order to get them to do what you want them to do in order to maintain order in your society. And Jesus had a different way, a better way. Love your enemies. Forgive those who sin against you. Pray for those who persecute you. Time and again, time and again, Jesus, his kingdom that he, this vision of the kingdom of heaven that he keeps inviting people into, it gets referred to as the upside down kingdom. The reality is our world is upside down and Jesus is turning it right side up. Jesus didn't have any interest in hurting anyone or in seeking revenge when he was hurt. Jesus was on a mission to heal to restore, rebuild, redeem is sort of the fancy biblical word. Jesus wanted to return things back to the way God had originally intended them to be. And as simply as I know how to put it, that what's it like? What is life like in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's when things are happening the way God designed them to happen. So big part of what Jesus does in his ministry, he proclaims and announces the good news of the kingdom. He also heals people. We had an entire message series last month, story after story, healing miracles of Jesus. Heals people of their illness, heals people of their sickness, heals people of their disease. What will heaven be like? A lot of times when we ask that question, one of the first verses that pops into our mind is from the book of Revelation. 
the last book of the Bible where one of Jesus' closest followers, the Apostle John, is given a vision of you know, all sorts of things, this apocalyptic vision, including what will heaven be like. And so here's Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. This is one of the pictures the biblical writers give us of what heaven will be like. No more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And that's an important piece of the puzzle because we all have people in our lives who have experienced death and tremendous sorrow and tremendous pain. And one of the great hopes that our faith gives us is ultimate healing will happen. That Jesus makes a way for eternal life. If you trust me, if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you accept my love for you, Jesus says, life with God for eternity in the kingdom of heaven is possible. This place where there's no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. But interestingly to me, a lot of us don't pay a whole lot of attention to the three verses that come before verse 4. And the revelation that John is given, part of what he sees before Uh, this idea of heaven being a place where there's no more death or suffering or crying or pain, John has this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And he sees the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down. Coming down. That's an interesting phrase when we're talking about what is heaven like. We don't often use the phrase coming down. We use the phrase going up, right? I mean, Jesus, after his resurrection, he ascends back to the Father. He ascends back to the Father. He goes up, back to heaven. And so, biblically, we have two ideas happening at once. What is heaven like? Well, there's a going up from earth to heaven. There's also a coming down from heaven to earth. And part of what John sees is there's someone on the throne in this new city of Jerusalem, and it's Jesus. And here's what Jesus says in Revelation 21, verse 3. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. So when we try to figure out the answer to the question, what will heaven be like, this gives us a pretty good idea. What's heaven like? Well, it's when God is with God's people. When God is with God's people, that's heaven. And and it happens perfectly and completely after Jesus' second coming. But it also, the good news and the surprising news, it also means we can experience heaven on earth right now. We don't have to wait until after we die to experience God with us. We just sang about it, that God is with us right now. God is present with us right now. Anytime heaven and earth meet, anytime heaven and earth collide, we get a picture of what heaven looks like. We get a glimpse of heaven. And that's a big part of what Jesus' ministry is all about. Jesus comes from heaven to earth. So everywhere Jesus goes, heaven is on earth. God is with us. And when we look at what Jesus is doing and how he's acting and how he's talking, we get a picture of what heaven is like. We we get this healing. No more death. He raises people from death to life. No more sorrow. He turns sorrow into dancing. No more pain. He heals people who are in pain. We get these glimpses of heaven whenever Jesus is doing these sorts of miracles. 
one of the things you see when you look closely at Jesus, he has this understanding that he is the messenger who's bringing good news, but Jesus is also very aware he has this understanding that he's the one on the throne. He is the one who is ruling in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Remember the Christmas story. What are the wise men looking for? They're looking for the one who has been born the king of the Jews. And so they send the wise men to Bethlehem, to the manger in Bethlehem, so they can worship this newborn king. The king at the time, King Herod, is pretty threatened by this. He doesn't want anybody else to be the king. He wants to be the king. So what does he do? He kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Jesus is able to escape. He does his ministry. And as an adult, Jesus continues to be a threat to kingdoms, to people in positions of power. They don't like him because they feel their power slipping away, their control slipping away, their order slipping away. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And surprisingly, Jesus lets them. Jesus lets them kill him. Remember what Jesus says? You don't have the power to take my life. I give it away of my own free will. Jesus allows himself to be killed, which is kind of a strange way to prove that you are a king unless your kingdom really is not of this world. And if you look closely at the accounts of the crucifixion in the Gospels, you'll see it's a coronation. Now, the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders, they're mocking Jesus as they put a crown of thorn on his head, as they put a purple robe on his blood-stained back. Instead of putting him on a throne, they put him on a cross. They put nails through his hands. They put nails through his feet. What do you suppose Jesus' feet looked like? Dirty, bleeding, calloused, blistered, cracked. How beautiful on the Mount of Calvary. How beautiful on Golgotha, the hill of skulls, are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news that God's love has the power to defeat any enemy in our lives, the enemy of sin and the enemy of death. I, I don't know what picture kind of pops into your mind as you think of this idea. What does it mean for Jesus to be the king in my life? What does it mean for Jesus to rule and to reign in my life? I think this poem in Isaiah 52 gives us a pretty good, a pretty good picture of what it looks like, what does it mean to have Jesus as king. At the end of the poem, in verse 12, it says this. The Lord will go ahead of you. Yes, the God of Israel will protect you from behind. Let me read that one more time. The Lord will go ahead of you. Yes, the God of Israel will protect you from behind. So, anybody have any fears or worries or concerns about the future? And I'm not talking 10 years from now, 20 years from now. What about just 10 days from now, 20 days from now? Anything coming up in the future that has you worried or concerned or uh, arguing or bickering or complaining with people? Anything that have you, has you wondering if or when or how we will actually be able to move forward? I think this is pretty good news. God is still reigning the God of Israel still reigns, and the Lord goes ahead of us. What if we could actually believe that? That as difficult, as challenging, as um, bad 
as these days can be in, in a whole lot of ways, the Lord continues to go before us, making a way, clearing a path for us to follow, for us to move forward. A, a lot of people, it's not moving forward that's kind of the, the big worry or the big fear. It's looking back and thinking about our past. And uh, so many people, their past, they believe, is just filled with so many mistakes and so many messes that it just kind of means they're stuck. And, and one of the ways they get stuck are these destructive and negative thought patterns. But what if we could trust? What if we could believe God has our back? God is protecting us from behind. That God can rewrite. God can give us a new narrative, a, a new way of understanding who we are, new thought patterns that are hope-filled rather than destructive. What if we could believe, instead of looking back and looking at all the hurt and all the pain and then wondering, well, who's going to hurt me today? What if we could believe God has our back? The God of Israel who reigns and who rules and who sits on the throne has all the power in the world to protect us, to keep us safe, to keep us secure, because heaven is real. Eternity is real. This is pretty good news. God is going before us and God has our back because Jesus says, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega. And Jesus says, I am making everything new for you. Seems like every generation has a moment or three where one of the big questions people have is like, is this the end? Is the world coming to an end? Uh, uh, the disciples in Matthew 24, they get to that kind of place. And they ask Jesus, what sign will signal your return and the end of the world? They want to know about the end of the world. When's it going to happen? What will be this sign that, it, that we're at the end of the world? I remember talking to my grandparents when they were still alive. They lived through the Great Depression. They lived through World War II. And, and I asked them, what, what was kind of the narrative at that time? Did everybody, did all the Christians believe, hey, we must be getting closer and closer to the end of the world? That was in the 1930s and 1940s. I remember the summer of 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And there became all of this conversation, is there going to be a war? And there actually ended up being a war, Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War. In the summer, though, before anyone knew what was going to happen, I was touring with a Christian music group, and as soon as Iraq invaded Kuwait and it looked like there might be military action uh, from the United States, the group was just like, oh, boy, this is, this is the Bible coming to life right in front of us. These are all the dots starting to connect to the end of the world and the battle of Armageddon. And they started singing this song, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. And I was just like... I don't know if I'm excited about that. I'm only 18. I'd like to live a little bit longer. I don't know. What, what is it about us? We want to know when. We want to know when. We, we don't want to be surprised. We want to know when. We're fascinated, uh, sometimes even obsessed by this question around the end of the world. Jesus talks about it. There's only two things that I think Jesus tells us with crystal clear clarity. One is he is going to return. Jesus assures us of this. It's going to happen. He will come again. And then the second thing Jesus assures us of is nobody knows when. Nobody knows the day or the hour, not even Jesus, not even the Son knows when it's going to happen. So when we start asking questions like when is the end going to come, what is heaven going to be like, I sometimes wonder if we're missing the point. 
I sometimes wonder if there's a more faithful question for us to ask. And that is, in light of eternity, in light of heaven being real, in light of God, uh, the God of Israel still reigning, how do I live today? There's no historical evidence that Martin Luther, the great reformer, ever said this, but a lot of people attribute this quote to him. Uh, It's like he was asked one time, what do you think about the end of the world? And and what would you do if the world was going to end tomorrow? And Luther's response was to say, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. Think about that for a second. If I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. It's like Luther understands. If we believe heaven is real, if we believe there is an eternity, then not only does that impact us for eternity, it does. It's good news. It means we will never die. We get to live in heaven forever with God through Jesus Christ. But it also impacts how we live our lives today. That our activity every day should be about how do we act and live in such a way that we help bring heaven and earth together. How do we make this world a better place for the people who are living in it today? And Luther says, I'll I'll just plant a tree. What about you? What what would it look like for you? How, How might you use whatever power or influence you have to make life a little bit better for the people around you? I'll tell you a story from our vacation that might give you an example of just some of the small things that you can do. I don't know if it's small, big, medium, whatever. These are things that you can do to make life better. So uh, we're at the beach, and uh, we're swimming in the ocean. And our daughter, Saffron, who is two weeks away from being a nine-year-old, she's deaf. She has cochlear implants. And, uh, you know, the Bible story was about the pearl of great price, right? Uh, Cochlear implants in our family are kind of the pearl of great price. These are not cheap things, and and it's almost miraculous uh, what they're able to do. And so we're at the beach, and a couple of years ago, we got these covers for Safi's cochlear implants that are waterproof so that she can still hear when she's swimming, which is pretty cool. Now, uh, I think we just kind of expect bad things to happen, so we only let her wear one of the implants at a time when she's in the water in case something happens and it falls off, but nothing is supposed to happen. There's this, it's almost like a fish line that's connected from the implant. The only way the implant stays on her is through a magnet, and uh, then there's this string that is attached to a clip, and we clip that onto her swimming suit, and that way the cochlear implant won't, you know, wash away in the pool or the beach or uh, a lake or wherever it is we might be. So the second day of vacation, we're out jumping in the waves, and uh, I got tired, and I wanted to just go sit down and and watch. And so Shaden, our 14-year-old, he said he would play with Saffron because the waves were kind of big, bigger than, you know, her. And so the waves would come in, and I'm watching. It's just great. And he would hold her up so that she stayed above the waves. And time and again, then in comes a, a, a monster wave. And I'm watching, and he holds her up, and it still, it just wipes both of them out. And I expect them to come up laughing, you know, and they weren't laughing. They looked scared, actually. They came running to my seat, and they said her implant fell off. That line snapped. It broke with the force of the wave, and the implant is at the bottom of the ocean. So off we went, looking for this pearl of great price. (laughs) Couldn't see a thing. 
I mean, I don't know how far out they were. It was like waist high and sand and waves. And there was, there's like, it would take a miracle, right? I'm sitting there praying, Lord, you, you caused the fish to swallow Jonah and spit him out onto dry land. Do that for the cochlear implant, would you? Uh, but the Lord did not hear my prayer. So we went back to the RV. Feel, I mean, that's not what you want to have happen at any day of your vacation. But the second day of vacation, goodness sakes, what are we going to do? So Wendy said, uh, I have an idea. Let's go to uh, Facebook. You know, if we did a sermon, what is hell like? We might say it's like Facebook. No, um, good things happen from Facebook too. And so there's this group from this little community where, where we were. And Wendy joined the group and made a post about the cochlear implant that we lost. And here's where we were. And people were asking questions. What part of the beach were you on? And what time of day was it? And everyone's saying, we'll be praying, we'll be praying, we'll be praying. She even talked to someone who was like a professional treasure hunter and said, I'm out of town. But when I get back on Saturday, I've got all the equipment. I'm going to find that. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, three days after we lost it, thinking there's no way we're ever going to find this again, Wendy gets a message from someone saying, um, we found a cochlear implant two miles from where we were. Um, wondered if it's yours. You want to get together and, and see. So we met them just before dinner, and they'd been out waist high, same depth that we were when we lost it. But for whatever reason, the wind had died down, and it was crystal clear water. And they looked down and they saw the cochlear implant right there. Two miles away, three feet deep in the ocean, and they grabbed it. Now, the guy that found it is not on Facebook because he loves Jesus. But his sister, his sister was on Facebook. And when he showed the cochlear implant to her, she said, Oh, I know someone who lost one and is looking for one. And we got together with them. We, we put it on... I, I figured for sure the, the whole thing is supposed to be waterproof, but in the ocean, surely some water got in there. No water got in there. The battery was still more than halfway charged. Safi put it on, she could hear just perfectly. Isn't that a miracle? I mean, I, I think that's, it's small compared to a lot of things that we pray for, but it was huge for Saffron. It was huge for our budget. What, what sorts of small things can you do they're just right in front of you they just God gives you the opportunity to make life better for someone when you do in a small way you bring heaven and earth together and you give us a glimpse you give us a picture of what heaven will be like let's stand together before we sing our closing song and, and let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray and notice in the middle of this prayer Jesus talks about heaven and earth coming together. Let's be a church. Let's be the body of Christ that helps usher in the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.